Dotnet Rocks, episode 1076. Recorded Tuesday, December 16th, 2014. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are at the uh, Goddard Space Flight Center in uh, right outside D.C. Yeah, we're in Maryland. Yeah, we're having a good time. Uh, we, it's just been a flurry since we got here. Took the train this morning, and now uh, here we are and going as fast as we can go. I've seen some amazing things already today. Pretty amazing, yeah. Well, uh, we are here with uh, Craig Tooley, and, but before we introduce him, let's roll the crazy music. <laughs> Buddy, what do you got? All right, so we we were talking, me and the boys, about having a smart button that you could put on the wall, that you could put on your shirt, that you could uh, stick on your desk, and it's just a button, but it's mapped to multiple functions on your smartphone. Okay. And so you can do stuff like, oh, I don't know, uh, text somebody your location, help, I'm being attacked or something like that, or mm-hmm. you could turn on some music, or you could lower the lights, or do anything that smartphones do but right. it's just a button yes and it's at flick that's f-l-i-c dot i-o and uh that's a it's sort of like in an indiegogo state right now they've raised a ridiculous amount of money and uh it's it's a button it's gonna be a button huh? it's a button it's something very star trek i want this on my, if i put it on my shirt and it beeps when i click it this is what i'm saying all right you can you so you know it never ends I, like what you can do with this button well, it, it, you know, we're still talking about voice recognition and all the challenges that that might entail, but one I'm with the, you. One of the uh, pictures they have on the site is really interesting. It's like grandma with three pictures of her grandchildren, and there's a button uh, under each one. So she wants to communicate or call one of the kids. She just goes to presses the button. It just sort of takes all the friction away of using smartphones and phone numbers and all that for grandma. Nice. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. All right, that's what I got. All right, that's cool. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 960, the one we did with uh, you and I when we talked about nuclear accidents. Because, you know, that's really a fun topic. I love the nuclear accident show. That was so much fun. <laughs> it and went I'm really kidding. well. I'm I kidding, think, actually. Yes. Uh, and Johan Olin said, uh, thanks for the good show, guys. I really like listening to your podcast. And I could just, as an aside, like, this is one of the things that gets me about the geek house is mm-hmm. when we actually get someone from the area. Right. Uh, your show about nuclear accidents brings back memories of when Chernobyl exploded. Back mm-hmm. then, I lived a few hours away from a Swedish nuclear power plant. Forsmark. Hmm. The day after the Chernobyl accident, before the Soviet Union had admitted what had happened, Forsmark's radiation sensors went crazy, and they thought they had an accident and locked down the facility. Wow. It took a while until they realized the radiation was actually outside the power plant and not on the inside. Forsmark is 1,100 kilometers away. Oh, man. And you're talking about 450, 500 miles away? Yeah. From Chernobyl, and it was the smoke from the fire that brought the radioactive particles that far away. As you said in the show, a fire can really make things worse. Yes. Yes, it can. That was the most important part about that. Tragic. And it's how, how strange that, that uh, he was there. Yeah, just one of those things. That was 1986. I mean, that's a long time ago yeah. now. There's some cool pictures coming out of There was a great drone video this year flying around the Chernobyl site just showing uh, – what, you know, this sort of frozen in time city that everybody was evacuated from and what the, what nature has done to it over the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. But there's also moments where the camera breaks up because there's still enough radiation there that every so often it damages the camera. Wow. 
I'll, I'll take New England. Thanks. There you go. Johan, thanks so much for your comment. It really uh, hit me hard, and I'd love to send you a .NET Rocks mug, so that's on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. Well, you know, we're, we're really excited to be here because we're going to be talking to a project manager on the MMS, the Magnetospheric Multiscale Goddard team. And uh, Craig Tooley is his name. T- Mr. Tooley is currently the project manager for NASA's Magnetospheric Multiscale Mission. MMS is an in-house GSFC, Goddard, Goddard Space, Space Flight, Flight Center. Center, mission launching in late 2014 which will use four identical spacecraft flown in formation in Earth orbit to make three-dimensional measurements of the plasma and the magnetospheric boundary regions and investigate the fundamental energy transfer process of magnetic reconnection. Mr. Tooley joined the MMS team as project manager in May 2011. His bio goes on, but we're out of time for that, so uh, (laughs) you can read it on the website. Very, very happy to have you with us. Glad to be here. We should start with... Define this thing in lay terms. Ah, well, the Magnetospheric Multiscale Mission, or MMS, first of all, we we're real hopeful they'll rename it something like maybe Maxwell, after Maxwell's equations. Okay. Sure. It'd be much easier to, t- to, to get out of your mouth. Yeah. Um, it, it is, as, as you said, it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental physics mission first and foremost, although, it, although the science we do has, has, has uh, great importance on much more practical levels. Um, but it is, it is a... It is first to be, you can think of it as an in situ flying laboratory, as opposed to a remote sensing Hubble Space Telescope or an Earth looking. You know, the, our goal is to actually fly a laboratory in this region where the sun's magnetic field, the interplanetary magnetic field essentially crashes into our own magnetosphere, which if you saw a picture of it kind of looks like an elongated tadpole. It deforms our Earth's magnetic field. Right. Which incidentally is lucky we have. Because it protects, (laughs) if you go to Mars, you're not so lucky. They don't have one there anymore. Um, and deforms it. And it's and the plasma flow, the sun, wind from the sun slams into it, and the magnetic fields interact. And magnetic reconnection, which you mentioned, is is actually a, a is the fundamental process that occurs when that transfers the majority, it's the major energy transfer mechanism from that magnetic field into our own near Earth space weather environment. Right. It drives our space weather, you, things like auroras yeah. and such. But it's called reconnection because what actually happens is when the conditions are just right, the magnetic field lines actually break. The Earth and the Suns, and they reconnect in another manner. When that happens, um, it essentially pumps an enormous amount of energy into the plasma. It almost comes like a jet. It accelerates the electrons and the protons, um, both thermally and in velocity, and that's what pumps the energy into our own magnetosphere. So it's the driver b- behind the solar geomagnetic storms and mm. things like that. And it's not very well understood. And interestingly, if you if you looked in the literature, if you did a web search on magnetic reconnection and you read very far, you'd find that you probably only have to go back about 15 years and you'll find the scientific community arguing about its very existence. So this right. mechanism is not very well understood. And so our goal is to figure out how it actually works so that eventually we could model it and predict it. We recently did a series of shows on fusion power and there was a huge discussion at the high energy side of of plasma fusion power around magnetic reconnection being one of the disruptive forces right. in creating a plasma field for energy. Is this the same thing? It is. Magnetic reconnection um, occurs on all, on all scales, including perhaps the smallest scale, what you just described, when we mm-hmm. create magnetic bottles and such to, to, to attempt to have, you know, energy-positive controlled fusion. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And when they have their field lines break and reconnect magnetically, it's a bad day. Yeah, the plasma um, sort of ends right. shortly And we have a very hard time. We really can't recreate and study magnetic reconnection under controlled conditions on the ground. It also occurs um, on larger scales. It is the driver behind solar flares, sure. magnetic and reconnection on sun. Our own magnetosphere is really the laboratory where we know what occurs and we think we can actually go catch it in action in three dimensions. And just in case you're not afraid yet, I mean, there's been a lot of solar activity lately, hasn't there? Is this timely? Was it planned to coincide with all this activity? Actually, it isn't. It's a good question, but but the solar cycle and the occurrence of magnetic reconnection do not appear to be strongly coupled. Oh, Um, interesting. And the implication when you say it is magnetic reconnection is, is there literally magnetic field lines from the sun connected to the magnetic field of the Earth? Exactly. That's a long way. Right. That's crazy. Well, I mean, the, the... they call it the interplanetary magnetic field for just sure. a reason. It extends out through the solar system. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's true. When we, if you watched animations on our website, they'll be simplified where you'll actually see the field lines when they simulate it and you'll see them break and reconnect and in a, in a different configuration. And Does it do anything to the position of the planet that, uh, or the orbit of the I planets? Don't, no, or no, it's, it's, not it's, it's not that strong at all. No. Yeah. But it is, I, I remember seeing a great video from a polar satellite that showed the northern lights from above the pole right. so that you could really see that it was radiating energy mm. hitting the planet. Mm. Right. And, and that is, is this actually magnetic reconnection when we see those kinds of waves of energy? No, you, you, that's not magnetic reconnection happening, but the energy that, that, uh, when the, when the, when the fields, you know, when that near earth environment as those field lines come into our poles, right. which is what the particles are traveling down to cause the auroras, when it gets too much energy to gradually dissipate it, it will, will have a geomagnetic storm. That right. energy that's been pumped into that system is, is largely driven by magnetic reconnection events. So it's basically, you know, when we predict the weather on Earth, it became important to understand, well, what, what are the drivers? What are the inputs that we need to model so then we can predict the weather? And you can think of magnetic reconnection as, as, as you know, uh, uh, the energy input that we, for the space weather. And if we can understand what, you know, what causes it, how frequently, and when the conditions are right for causing it, we come a step closer to predicting and space And we have weather. a bunch of space weather satellites right now. I'm thinking of SOHO and things that monitor the sun and sort of watch for coronal discharges. Yeah. We, actually, we don't, we, we have SOHO and SOHO's pretty old. Yes. Um, there a long time. Um, the Solar Dynamic Observatory, much newer, mm-hmm. orbiting the Earth. Um, those are actually scientific satellites, although they can, you can understand space weather from those observations. Right. We, we have a handful of uh, SOHO is at the libration point between the Earth and the Sun, mm-hmm. and we have an, a fairly old spacecraft called the ACE spacecraft, actually very old at this point. Those are really our, our weather beacons right now because they detect the events and give us an hour of warning. Right. And that's, there's actually a space weather center. Um, but if you really want to predict space weather in order kind of near term, like daily weather reports, you need, right now you need to get out closer to the sun so you can, you can see that you can see the stuff coming. Right. And say, take shelter if you're in an astronaut or tell the power grids that, you know, there might be an, an event and they need to be ready to reconfigure on the ground. Right. Um, and even satellites will maneuver to minimize exposure. Right. Or turn off systems, you know, right. you'll turn Just off your down. scientific instruments. So you're, so you're, 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 CCDs, your microchannel place, you need to try to protect those. But that's not really MMS's job. It's a scientific mission. Right. Our, our job is, is really fundamental science that will then lead to being able to better do that kind of prediction, as well as understand everything from how does magnetic reconnection work on the ground when we sure. do fusion disks? How does it work in stellar, you know, accretion disks? How do, you know, what drives solar flares? So what have we learned from this project about reconnection? Well, we haven't launched it yet. So, yeah. okay. Uh, so the, the mission that's up. It's close. March 12th, we launch. Yeah. So all my satellites are down at the 
what launch you, site right they're now. They're around here. Oh, they're not here anymore. They're at Kennedy Space Center. Yeah, oh, okay. I so just came back day before yesterday. Yes, wow, wow, we're getting wow. ready to fly. That's exciting. Yes, um, I read about the Cluster Two mission, which was also a four satellite mission. It was ESA? Right. I think it's yeah. Yeah. Cluster. Um, it was. Cluster and also Themis. Themis, um, yeah. It was a five very small satellite mission. And that's still running. Right. Although Themis. they changed the configuration. Right. We will actually coordinate our operations with Themis when okay. we're there. Um, we're, we're precursors to the MMS's goal. They could, they could see and detect magnetic reconnection occurring, but they weren't, they could not record it in its midst. They couldn't record it real time. They didn't right. have the temporal or spatial resolution mm. um, to actually understand the process setting it off. But they certainly could observe, and we we know it's real. And they could they could see evidence of it happening and and study when it occurred. So the MMS plan is very much informed by these earlier very, missions. Very very much that right. you knew you needed to be able to. You, I think one of the features of MMS, just from what I read, was really fast data capture. Like you're right. looking at at is it nanosecond scale events? No, milliseconds. Millisecond scale events. Right. That's really fast. And in a very small space, you know, we fly these four MMS spacecraft, there, mm -hmm. and they spin. Um, How close together? As close as ten kilometers. Okay. And so, wow. and we we have we have four so. Because you need four points to get three dimensions. Right. So we, we fly you, these and we vary this formation. Um, the scientists are in, this is a mission where the scientists are, shall we say, in the loop of operations, the whole mission. Interesting. Real time because no one really knows what's the optimal formation. We also have to be, we have to tag the events when we think we've seen them because we can't get all the data all the time to the ground. So we, we've got, you can imagine we would. What's the orbit? The orbit is, um, it's a highly elliptical orbit. Um, which means the perigee, the close points very, is about 7,000 kilometers from the earth. Okay. And during the first year, the apogee is about 75,000 kilometers out. So you see this really elongated orbit. Right. Um, and then as the earth goes around the sun, that orbit essentially moves like you would see a clock face. Right. And it's when we swing, when that orbit swings through the region, but you know, kind of this arc of the, our, of, of space between us and the sun, which is what we call the bow shock right. of the of our magnetosphere. That's where magnetic reconnection occurs right. very frequently. So we do science as we pass through there. The second year of the mission, it's two years long. Um, we double that apogee. We go we go over one hundred fifty thousand kilometers out, and we we do we look for magnetic reconnection in what's called the magneto tail, the tail of our magnetosphere, because oh, okay. it occurs out in the in the neutral sheet. They call it. It's called it's an electron neutral sheet. And they know it occurs out there. So we we maneuver these spacecraft out the second year, and then swing through the magneto tail. So magnetopause is the front side of that bow shock, and that's about seven thousand kilometers off the surface. Oh, no, 75,000. 75,000 kilometers. Right. It's, okay. Yeah, when we swing back in and get close to the Earth, we're, we're, just, com we're just waiting to come back around. And dumping data and doing all right, those good things. Right, When we get closer, we dump our data to the Deep Space Network and to the TDRS Network, the Tracking Data Real Satellite Network, and then as well as the uh, Space Network, I mean the Ground Network, smaller antennas. But we use the JPL's Deep Space Network when we want to dump the data. Right. And so it's 75,000 kilometers out. Where are you in terms of the bow? Are you in front of the bow shock? Like no, no actually we're, we're, we're actually in the midst of it. Okay. And there was this th concept called electron diffusion region, which seemed very interesting, but I'm not sure what that means. Um, well, a caveat. I'm an engineer, not right. a plasma physicist. That's fair. Um, <laughs> but the electron diffusion region um, is actually when they model the uh, – I'm going to pull a picture out here just so we could speak to. But we're – Magnetic reconnection, and you can see I'm pointing out a diagram, but there, there's magnetic field lines, and they and they actually they they know enough about it that there's you know there's this region where where it's going to happen, and inside that region, um, 
there's a there's a there's a smaller region which is actually the proton region and protons are heavier and then there's a slightly larger region they call the electron diffusion region okay and that's the region where the en- where the energy transfers to the plasma the plasma being largely protons and neutrons with a few other heavy um, ions included so that's that's what we're looking for, this plasma diffusion. And, of course, you're in an orbit, so you don't get to just sit on the bow wave. No, you, we sweep you, right through you it. Just, you just come tearing through it. We tear it through it. And magnetic reconnection doesn't happen all the time. Right. These are, these are regular but not periodic yeah. events. Yeah, you're looking to get lucky. You want to be in it when it happens. Right. From these previous missions, there's, there's, there, they think they have reasonably good estimates about, well, if we fly through that region this many times. Yeah, how, we, how we, long's an orbit when it's that size? The first orbit is a day-long orbit. Right. That 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 when we go in the out in the bow shock, mm-hmm. and then the, when we go out in the tail, that's about a three-day orbit. Okay. So each orbit will pass through. Now, when we're on the side of the Earth, when that orbit's kind of out of phase, we're just waiting to get there. But so we pass through it. But it means in the first year you're going to get about 350, 360 shots at trying to be in the right place at the right time. Are there any theories as to what you think you might find or what the results, some of the results might be? Is there any guesswork going on? Yes, and I can talk about that in general. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's, um, I mean, there's a large number of scientists involved right. and there are already, um, Mo- people are, you know, people are modeling magnetic reconnection from mm-hmm. all the data we have. They can simulate, they can simulate magnetic reconnection to some degree. In those equations of simulation, though, there's a whole lot of terms that they don't know, you know, which ones should be, which ones are most important, which ones play the role of triggering it. And so there are actually a number of theories and models that people are running. And essentially, MMS should inform that. And we should say, okay, now we understand that, you know, we can write the equations of magnetic reconnection and we won't have all, we won't have more unknowns than we, yeah, than we, than right. we have solutions. Um, so maybe we should talk about the vehicles because sure, you know, absolutely. Because we do that are, better. You just drop four of them down, at, 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 and I get that you need four because that's how you do three dimensional measurements, right? Uh, two and a half meters in diameter. No, um, let's see. We'll talk in feet for a minute because pops off. Go my feet. Head. Um, e- each of these, they look like they look kind of like a hockey puck. They're octagonal, right? Um, cross the cross the corners of, of the of the of the way we launch. It's about thirteen feet. Oh, they're big. They're big. Yeah. And they're about four, four feet. And so that's thick. four and a half, five meters. Right. Uh, in size. No wonder yeah. they've been flying on an atlas. Right. There's not a lot of right. shrouds that wide. Right. We're in a four meter atlas fairing and we're very tight. Now that, that's dwarfed by our actual size on orbit. When we get those spinning, we send them up, they spin at three RPM, mm-hmm. but we vary that. Um, we deploy 60 meter wire booms out on right. four sides. So 180 na- feet. Na- each side, yeah. So now we're now our diameter is four of those. Wow, with 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 electric field sensors on the end. So we're spinning to keep those. Ta- and they're cables. We ah. played these cables with huh. communication lines in them. Played them out, mm-hmm. and then we play out um, twelve meters of of collapsible boom out the top and the bottom. Right, okay. and then we unfold five meters of other booms out the sides too. So now we so got just these rods sticking out. All, over all the that place. stuff sticking out and we're, and we're spinning at three RPM and we have a propulsion system on board and we're going to maneuver these while keeping track of our spin and not slacking those wires. Yeah. Wow. And then we, we have to maneuver every two weeks to maintain and adjust the formation. Do you um, pull the rods back in? No. You, so once they're out, they're out. We can, we, how do you maneuver well, all, something all, with all that centripetal force going well, on? Well, you maneuver it. Actually, the problem is the centripetal force. The problem is you don't want to slack the wires. Right. And they so stay taut. They're very, they're response. So we maneuver once they're out. We, we do the maneuvers very slowly. Right. I mean, and we've done a lot of work to design the maneuvers. It's a very complicated 
Um, people think of spinning satellites as being kind of old school 1960s. You know, it was the simplest ones we ever built, little rigid spin. You spin them up, they're stable. Right. This is very complicated because we, we have to maneuver these. We have to keep them oriented toward the sun, um, both for the instruments to be not not in the their own shadows as well as to keep our solar arrays, which are just fixed around the side. Speaking sure. of the 60s, we hear they have nicknames. Yes, before I became project manager, um, they decided they would they would name each one after the Beatles. So they they each have a John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Ringo yes, they're also color coded on the inside, um, so we can keep track of which one's which. We some of the aluminum is coated in different places on the inner structure, so we they each have a color associated with it. Are the it. colors any of any significance? I don't think so. They were the colors that you can anodize aluminum easily. That's, That's an okay. important feature. But they're all identical, though. They're all they're all identical, so they take it identical measurements. Each right. one each one has twenty five scientific instruments on it. Yeah, so I have a hundred instruments we had to build. Um, and it, and they should calibrate the same. I mean, yes, they calibrate the same. My my experience talking to folks dealing with spacecraft is no two are absolutely the same. Right. So we keep track of the subtle differences. Right. Um, and that's one of our challenges is building when building four of something, which is very unusual for NASA. And, and a two year mission seems brief for an awful lot of the satellites that folks know about. That's true. Um, I mean, two years was designed, you know, because it. Even when the mission was conceived as part of the the National Research Council Decadal Survey, which is really who decides what NASA's what the nation's science goal. We, NASA doesn't make these things up and decide right. on their own. They they kind of this was at the top of the heliophysics list. And the concepts was well, one year looking at the in in the bow shock and one year looking in the tail, we should be able to see enough magnetic reconnection to basically solve the puzzle. Right. Now, the observatories um, are capable of flying longer than that. They have, right. we have enough fuel to fly one or more years more, depending on how how, how much, much what we want to do with the formation. Right. Um, but we what can I achieve the goal. Themis became Artemis because they... Right. But they got an extended mission. Yes. Um, right. And in, since you mentioned Themis, it's interesting. Um, Themis is still flying, mm -hmm. although they sent a couple of them, I think, to the moon. Yeah. Well, um, a third of the way to the moon and then became the Artemis mission. Well, Artemis mission. The, the remainder of Themis is going to be... We're, we're going we're gonna to sink our orbit so that when we're, when we're lined up with the sun in the bow shock... Themis is lined up with us in the tail awesome. so that their wow. data their data coordinates. And so we're, we've been coordinating with the Themis That's mission. Really, well, just to see, would it be magnetic coupling across the whole? Well, they should be able to see the effects in the tail of what – because the, what goes on in the tail is is actually driven by, by the interactions in the front. So they'd like yeah, to what, see all that synchronized. That's really cool. Yeah. Model of efficiency. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? It must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to roll up. Roll up for the mystery tour. <laughs> and that's an invitation to make a reservation. <laughs> oh, no. No. Are no. we really doing I Beatles think gags now? I thought that was so cool. That's where you're at. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm with you. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before we tell you who won today, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Kale McDonald. Congratulations, Kale. Yeah, clap for Kale. 
And uh, Kale just won a D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from DevExpress. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away sponsor stuff. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And we like to ask all of our guests. So, Craig, if you had $5,000 today to spend, and this ought to be good, yeah, I think to so. spend on technology... Like, let's go shopping. What would you buy? Oh, my. What don't you already have? Because you play with some pretty good toys. And it's got to be something that well, we can understand. This would be my own stuff, though, This, would be right? for this you. wouldn't be government no, issue no, no, stuff. No, no. no you wouldn't. Your toys. It wouldn't. I would probably buy a really, really nice laptop, and then I'd still have money left over, wouldn't I? Depends, Depends on, on what I mean. I can blow five grand yeah, easy. Yeah, I think this one was like that. <laughs> yeah. That's probably what I would buy. There you go. Maybe we can eat up your five grand. Since with I share them at home. Great big one terabyte honking SSD, SSD drive. Yeah. Yeah. And the retina display. Yeah. Yeah. All good stuff. Well, Richard, besides doing the giveaway in this show, this is a special Indeed, show. Isn't the it? one we get to do only once a year. This is where we, we actually do the yes. giveaway. I mean, it's one thing to figure out what you would like to do with. $5,000, but it's quite another to spend To actually it. do it. That's right. And to put our money where our mouth is, we have uh, James Myers from Toledo, who is this year's winner. Congratulations, James. Yay. Thank you, guys. So did you believe us? <laughs> uh, yeah, it didn't It didn't quite so look so spammy when you sent it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, I, it, but it was a shock. It was just a personal yeah, email. Yeah, we're trying to be we've mm-hmm. we've learned the third time around to be a little more careful on how we present this whole idea. Yeah, you put too many uh I don't know salesy words in yeah. there or markety words in there and it goes right to the garbage. Actually I thought we had a pretty funny email exchange, especially when I asked you for ninety nine ninety five for shipping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you when you asked for that, that was uh that was kind of a red flag, but uh, did, did I worry you at that moment or did you know it was a gag? I figured it was a gag, but you know, then I was weighing in my mind, well, you know, $99. <laughs> I enjoy the show a lot, so you know, I guess it would be a donation. <laughs> That's funny. So, my friend, what are you going to spend your $5,000 on? Do you have a list? Uh, yeah, I've been working on a list here. Um, it started out; it was uh, a little tough because you know I don't I don't buy a lot of technology mm-hmm. um, besides what's required. Right. Uh, but then soon I filled it up pretty quickly. Okay, <laughs> let's hear it. What's item number one? Well, item number one is I need to get a iPad for the wife. Very wise, very smart. All right, mm-hmm. the the full blown sixty four gig iPad. Yeah, probably. Okay. Yeah. Uh, second, I need a new phone. I I have a really really old Android phone here, and I'm interested in getting into the Windows Phone stuff. So sure. And it, I, in some ways, it's kind of a tough time for Windows phones, right? The, the 1020, mm-hmm. which I think is an amazing phone, has got a few year got a year on it now. The 930 hasn't officially come to North America. Hmm. Unless you're a Verizon guy, in which case is the 928, right? What's needed, though, is that you can connect it via Bluetooth to, like, a Raspberry Pi or an Arduino or something like that and use all the sensors in it for an IoT device. That's pretty cool. I didn't, I'd never even thought of that. 
It's gadgety. Um, yeah. There's a lot right. of sensors in An there. iPad, a yeah. phone. Uh, yeah, so then I've been listening, you know, back through the shows to listen to all your guests' ideas to kind of get some more ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm leaning towards, you know, doing the Surface Pro docking station kind of kind of machine. Wow, oh, the cool. full Surface Pro 3 with all the gadgets attached to it? Yep, I think so. Isn't it funny that we think of the Surface Pro 3 the same way we think of the MacBook Pro? Like, really awesome and really expensive, you know? <laughs> That's funny. They're in that. They're in that camp yeah, now. You know, fully loaded. It's not a cheap machine, right? Like it's in fifteen hundred no. bucks. Like that's not chump change. You can buy a lot of laptop for fifteen hundred bucks. Well, fifteen hundred bucks is just without you know the, all the options for yeah. storage. Like if you crank up to a whole one terabyte drive, you know, now you're talking a few grand. Aren't well, you? yeah. I mean the full okay, the fully loaded one, which is the five hundred twelve gig storage in the i seven, is two yeah. grand. Okay. There you go. Now you still got to get the key. You want to get the good keyboard. I, you know, right. I would even suggest the battery keyboard, right, with the backlight and so forth. And that's three hundred bucks. And then you want the docking station, which is a few hundred dollars. And then, uh, um, then obviously another monitor, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I have one really old monitor, and I need. Uh, I'll need a new monitor. Sure. I can tell you what this. You the, I picked up one of the Dell twenty five sixty by fourteen forty displays. It's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just surprised. Like I, I've always had good monitors, but the latest generation of monitors, color registration is better, brightness is better. Like it's so much better. I'm ignoring my 2560 by 1600 display because I'd rather hmm. hang out on that what's actually a smaller display because it's so crisp. Wow. I still love my Dell 30 inches. Yeah, they're good monitors. No two ways about it. But I, I think yeah. if you got one of the brand new ones, you'd see the difference. The, the technology continues to evolve. It's yeah. like once you switch out one monitor for next generation technology, you'll end up switching them all. That may be. All right, where are we at financially here? iPad, 600 bucks. Phone, um, 300 400 uh, two thousand for the surface with all the accessories, maybe three thousand. I think we still got about a grand to go, at least. Uh, yep, I, that's where I was. I was thinking. Um, I guess uh, I kind of want to get a little bit. I have one little project that I want to do um, that probably is going to require a Netduino or an Arduino. I know that's not going to add much to bucks. it, but uh, you can get a heck of a lot of shields and sensors with that. <laughs> yeah, we could load for a thousand dollars. We could load you up with everything you can imagine in the IoT space. Yeah. Pretty close. Yeah, that's true. Oh, well, and then I was thinking when I was listening back, I was I, I have four small boys, and uh, they might like it if I went with the Lego Mindstorms kind of a thing. Ooh, nice one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. I, I don't think we can get you that in time for Christmas, but it's such a cool yeah. gadget. We'll try. Anyway, I like the idea that we're building you an IoT rig. How very recent and topical. Yeah, that's right. The last winners were all about, the first one was all about dev. second one was about mobile right. dev. And now we're in now IoT. Now we start to think about IoT dev. Very cool. I love it. Yeah. Well, I guess we got to make this come true, Carl. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I got my American Express card ready. ready. Ready to go and spend some money on it. And I got to call Jason over at American Express and tell him, yes, I am actually sending all this stuff to Toledo. 
All right, James, anything else before we uh, let you go? Uh, no, I just want to say thank you guys again. I mean, this is this is totally a, a shock, and uh, I really enjoy the show. Keep it up. Great. Well, we hope you enjoyed the show even without winning the $5,000, and <laughs> sounds like you do. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, so I've been... Been listening. I haven't been listening since the beginning, but since '09, so it's been wow, quite a while. Five years, so. yeah, that's a lot of shows. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, when we send all this stuff to you, take a picture of it and send it to us, will you? Certainly, will do. All right, James. Thanks. All right, thanks again, guys. All right, we'll see you later. All right, all right. let's dive right back into this thing because uh, I think some of the technical sides of this is really interesting. Yeah, you must be buffering a lot of data on these. On the spacecraft, when you get when you go through that bow shock, you're going to be measuring everything you can from all these instruments, right? But you're not communicating at that point. No, we what we're doing. Um, although the mission, in human terms, is pretty expensive, right? Um, our communication system is on what's called S band, right? Which is the perhaps the slowest of all X band, um, KA band, mm-hmm. um, and and our antennas are fixed because we're spinning, so right. we can't point a dish. So we've got these kind of medium gain antennas. Um, so our data rate down is was is somewhat limited. So we said, well, we can't we can't just we just can't um, you know pipe all the data down all the time. No, but we don't know when we're going to get magnetic reconnection. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So what happens is um, there's two things that happen is is whenever we're approaching the region and in the region, which is which is you know maybe. Uh, um, a quarter of the overall orbit, right? And it, like a six-hour window of the right. bow we, shock we, orbit. We are, we're definitely we're recording all the data. Right. Uh, we record data all the time because right. you know scientists would never pass up an opportunity. You never know when you're going to uh, find something. We have we have uh, the science team has developed essentially metadata that they look you know things that are basically triggers or 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 signatures that they're seeing magnetic reconnection, right? Mm-hmm. And then and that marks essentially. Uh, you know, delimiters in the data that we're eventually going to overwrite. Say, don't overwrite this. Okay. Mm-hmm. This might be magnetic reconnection. Can you talk about how like, how much capacity have you got? Like, you got a day's worth of storage? Uh, we have three days worth of storage. Okay. Um, in case, a, in case, full we, resolution. Like, yeah, there's in not case, a resolution mode. we talk mm-hmm. every day, but in case something goes awry, yeah. we've got a buffer. But what's even more interesting is, is, is at the science operation center. We fly the mission out of Goddard here. We have a mission operations center, and that's yep. where the that's where we fly the vehicles out at University of Colorado at the Laboratory for Atmospheres and, and Space Physics. LASP is the science operations center, mm-hmm. and they basically operate the instruments. And sitting there, there'll be the what we call the scientists in the loop position. Mm-hmm. And there, there'll also be real. The scientists will look at this metadata coming down all the time. Basically, it's to cross-check whether this automation of identifying magnetic reconnections, because since it's a little unknown, you know, they weren't confident that we could automate this. Sure. So they'll essentially around the clock be looking to, to see, do we think we see magnetic reconnections in these signatures? How much data are we talking here? I think it's about a terabyte a day. Nice. Wow. Yeah. And, and this is on the slow band. No, that's what we'll dump. Yeah. 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 But, the, you know, that's what you're capturing on board per unit or? Yes. So you got four terabytes of data every day you need to dump. So oh wow. All right. And so how fast is that quote unquote slow oh, connection? I'd have to, I would up? have to look that up. But it okay. doesn't it's not that slow, obviously. Well, I mean we have a we have a you know, we have deep space network passes that are a couple hours long at a couple places in each mm-hmm. orbit. And right. So, and of course we do that when we get a little closer to the Earth to get the bandwidth up. Is there any communication going towards the the thing? Like do you have any control over it? Oh sure, we 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 talk to it, um, you know, what we call command and telemetry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we do that on a much lower. We, you know, we only need a hand. You know, yeah. You know, we can do it as low as a sure. uh, three hundred bits per second right, if it right. gets desperate. But you know, ranges we set the rate from twelve kilobits to four kilobits. Um, 
where we get the telemetry, the housekeeping, you know, what's hot, what's cold, what's right. turned on, is anything sh- throwing flags in the software? Um, and then we, we only need even a smaller amount to send the commands up. Mm. Um, yeah. And that goes on much, not all the time, but we have more stations on the ground with smaller antennas that we can reach to do basically to fly the thing, although we, we have blackouts. So let's say you find magnetic reconnection, the scientists are on the ground, they say, oh, that's something going on. Is there something that they would want to do depending on the data that they get? To tell it to, I don't know, turn this way or that way no, or measure this no, or that? They, we, 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 no, they, they wouldn't do that real time. What they would do, though, is if we've, you know, after, after a couple orbits or some number of orbits, they'll be looking at their data sets and they'll say, you know, it looks like 12 kilometer spacing isn't optimal. What's, can you guys on the next maneuver, you know, move it to 15 okay. right. or move it into 10 or just or, little adjustments? Right, yeah. right. The, the size of the formation is, is something, is, is a knob they can turn. Yeah. Um, and they would command, and we would then adjust that formation for here. Cool. And so, obviously, they're not looking at just raw data coming back. They must be visualizing that in some way that seems like it might be some uh, right. particularly sophisticated software to visualize right. when that. They, when they first look at it, um, I mean, they, they have – since we have instruments that measure – um, electric fields. Um, we have instruments that measure magnetic fields, and then we have a we have a whole suite of instruments that measure particles. You know, higher. What speed are they coming at? What's their energy level? Right. Um, even what what their species are. Um, and and they they look at all that data essentially in in, in line plots to okay. kind of and they they know from other measurements. You know, magnetic mm-hmm. reconnection is. So when you look at 10 of them stacked up, you'd say these are the kinds of things. And that's kind of the raw They're data they patterns. look at. They look for the patterns that they know are, are yeah. indicative. And then that data goes into the analysis to see if we can understand how this happened and and what it, you know, is there the any, cause and the effect. Is there any machine learning happening there with the data that comes in? Uh, you know, just sort of intelligent uh Neural network kind of processing, or is it just so I, I simple? I wouldn't go that, that far. I don't. Look. I mean, for this part, it's it's fairly simple. Yeah. It's 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 a sensor platform. Yeah, yeah, it's a sensor You're not platform. Looking for a needle in a haystack. From what the, kind of no. processor are we talking about that are on board? What's a, what's a satellite computing rig look like? Mm-hmm. Um, our our spacecraft fly. Um, these spacecraft fly um, a processor called a cold fire processor. Okay, which is actually a only modestly capable. Um, um, single board computer processor, low power. Uh, we did it for low power. Um, it meant we were, but it also has to be resistant. It's got to survive in space. It's right. Whatever there. we fly has to be has to be rad hard. So right. that that immediately puts you, mm. as you probably know, yeah. about ten years behind everybody yeah. else because right. yeah. the market for rad hard things moves more slowly. Sure. Um, so we have a pair of these. Each spacecraft has got an A and a B side in case we suffer a failure. We can swap over. Um, so that's our main computer. There's actually a a number of other processors. The instrument. Processing unit has its own processor, right? That's that's coordinating these twenty five instruments, and then even some of the some of the uh, sensors we have have processors. But right. the core processor is this digi- digital signal processor, right. like mm. smart gear, hmm. and and then at least a terabyte of storage on board, right? That's got to be expensive to be rad it's a hard storage. A day, so it's three yeah, it's, it's all it's all. It's all solid state, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I might have to check, a, double check the terabyte items around that. Maybe it's less. Maybe I'll tell you after the interview. You can correct right. my error. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, rad hard and storage is not cheap either. I mean, it's solid state storage, yeah. What yeah. is rad hard? Anyway, let's define that for the listeners. Oh, rad hard is, well, rad hard is essentially engineering as well as testing microcircuits, integrated circuits, um, and putting provisions in so they're, so they're either immune or self-correcting from from upsets that come from usually protons, which sell right through yeah. right through your stuff, and and if they hit in the right place, um, they either 
change a bit that you didn't want changed. Yep. That's recoverable, although if you're in the middle of a precision maneuver, having a bit changed could be, could be hard. Really so we have unfortunate. lots of stuff that looks to correct that. And then you can also just get things that will, will destroy a junction. Sure. And so these are, these are parts that have been engineered um, to be resistant, at least probabilistically. Right. Nothing is part, I mean, eventually everything we fly in space electronics will be degraded by radiation. So these are parts that, mm. that, that the manufacturers have built a rad hard version of mm. and even Probably more important, they they put it through a test program. We take them to beam laboratories, they mm-hmm. Brookhaven and places, and they'll basically prove yeah. to, to whoever's going to buy them. By rating the snot out of them. Right. Yeah. The, the, yes, this is the upset rate. This is, and, and that's one of the reasons, you know, it's very expensive stuff is, is, you know, this can happen not only to the processor, but, you know, anything with a semiconductor junction sure. is, 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 that can risk. be degraded by radiation. Yeah, it's funny. My uncle did that for, uh, years. That was his job. He worked at IBM Binghamton and his job was basically take computers and boxes and blow them up and nice. try to destroy them. Yeah. Right. And see what happens. And what's interesting is, you know, as we have got more sophisticated and we have built ever, ever better and smaller computers mm-hmm. and our, integrated circuits get smaller and smaller right and our traces get you know Finer microscopic yeah. yeah that actually is makes you makes this harder you know if you yeah, went back in that. the 70s the size of the components was much you know they weren't they were more at hard by 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 nature but we've got these very fast small things it's actually that one aspect that's made life harder yeah you get down to those little nanometer traces right right and you talk about a current generation intel process it doesn't take very much energy to, to destroy it's yeah. like it's really narrow that's right. not that hard to damage right but and, uh, you're again. You're several years behind. Your traces are bigger, and they're still vulnerable. Right. And has NASA written their own everything from the OS up? Everything, all the software is. What do you uh, program in? Well, we we didn't we we use uh, we didn't write the operating system. Okay. This satellite uses the Artem's operating system. Okay. Um, it's a real time. I forget what the rest of it. It's a real time operating system. It's actually publicly available. Mm-hmm. Um. Um. There's a couple others that we use, but this is what they used on this spacecraft. From there on forward, we've written all of it. We actually have a standardized or, or a legacy standardized. We continue to develop um, the, all the layers above that. Um, core flight software, core flight executive we use, and we those are all in modules. So we don't have to rewrite everything. We'll, you know, we basically building block this. And you can actually put that on different operating systems. We're not, we're not, we don't have to use our attempts. That's very cool. Um, and the language? Well, they mostly program in C++ right. when they write the code. Yeah. Although, you know, on the ground, the, the scientists use a plethora of everything from yeah, Python yeah. to to do their stuff in. I don't know. Fortran was originally invented as a scientist language. I'm right? surprised not a functional language for this kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, dealing with data. I guess they're not analyzing the data. No, they're that's just down here. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a sensor platform. I still right. have a simulator that we use that's written in ADA. Of course. Awesome. Yeah. But well, it's an, an awful lot of same. defense and, and government stuff that's done in ADA as for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So... One of the things I find interesting about this is clearly you're doing original science work. You're going to learn something in the next couple of years, starting in March of next right. year. And that's going to inform, I guess, another science mission entirely. Well, it will. I don't know. I think the objective with MMS is if we if we can understand the triggers and the conditions that drive magnetic reconnection, I think to, we'll have answered that question in right. the near term. There won't be another 
um, magnetic stress. reconnection sure. seeking. There will be, there's lots of other questions about the interaction of the sun and the earth and the magnetosphere sure. and such. And, and the Van Allen belts, you know, you can, RBSP is up there. It's a Paris spacecraft to kind of explore something that's related in this environment. But MMS, there's, there's not an immediate follow on. Our job is to basically answer this particular sure. question. What's Very it going to do? Mission. What does it do? Where is it? Yeah. So is the implication really about weather on earth? I think the practical, the, the practical implications would be, you know, from the most practical would be understanding and thus being able to predict space weather better. Yeah. In right. which case, you would do a better job of informing satellite operators, power grids. Um, yeah. You know, a hundred years ago, there was a solar. The big X-class event. Right. I mean, where they uh, disconnected the batteries from the telegraph and the telegraph still worked. Right. Well, there was one in the interim <laughs> of there where the, the Canadian power grid went down. Right. Huh. Um, so we'll be able to predict those longer out and more accurately. We'll be able to, and if we're going to, if we're going to sail the seas of, of interplanetary space, yes. predicting the weather for our astronauts, you know, it's somewhat akin to being able to master the weather on Earth when we began to well, sail around. We talked about the, the Mars mission, you yeah, know, that Curiosity if, turned on its radiation sensor in flight and found out that the gamma radiation coming from the Earth to Mars was serious. Like, now suddenly flying a crew is going to be a real challenge. Right. And we've, we found out that the radiation around the moon close down is higher than right up in orbit. Interesting. From oh, the last wow. mission I did. Um, which surprised everybody. Something to know. There's uh, enough albedo that. Yeah. Okay. So it's sort of an interesting truth. But it does sound like at some point we'd be able to build another space weather craft. Well, space weather is a different question. We, yeah. we very much need to. And in fact, at the launch site right now, launching um, in January, is the Discover spacecraft, which mm -hmm. is a follow-on. Its primary mission is to go out and be essentially be a space weather buoy right. out at the you know, Earth-Sun level 1 libration point to replace the ACE spacecraft and to sit out there. It, that's actually – we built it for NOAA. Right. Space weather, well – Weather predictions their gig, and and yep. so space weather is going to be their gig. Mm. So we just built this. It launches in in actually in January to continue to be a weather buoy, um, and it in so we can have you know an hour odd warning because the speed those things move, they'll see it an hour before it reaches the Earth. Right. All right. We only have a few minutes left. I'm going to just throw out this tangent question to you. What's the weirdest thing scientifically that you've ever seen in your career? Weird. The weirdest thing the weirdest, I've ever seen. Or maybe most unexpected result you most ever got unexpected. from I think I'll answer it a little differently. Okay. I think the most unexpected thing I've seen, and it wasn't necessarily most unexpected to me, because scientists had my scientists had convinced me they thought it was true, but it was very unexpected by some other scientists, and this is was uh, on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, mm -hmm. <clears throat> when, we when they discovered... That there was not only water entrained in the permanently dark regions, but for some reason we didn't understand. It appeared that there was water, or at least evidence of water, entrained in places where there was sunlight, which huh. was not what people expected. There was a lot of argument whether it would even be in the permanently dark craters, because huh. it's cryogenic. Yeah. Then we began to see evidence that it actually was, we were getting signals of it in the regolith where it wasn't dark. And that was very surprising. Um, Did we ever ever should get an answer to why that is? I don't think we understand why that is yet. No, we I think we need to go. go we have to check it out. We have to have some on the ground. Well, stuff. we got a couple of interesting missions coming up. Maybe we'll get a little closer to doing that. Yep. Craig Tooley, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for geeking out with us. And we'll see you next time on Dot Networks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a